Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Setacase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is a very, very special one. I have with me returning guest, Jonathan Matheson. We're going to be talking about his book, Why It's Okay to Not Think for Yourself. Why It's Okay Not to Think for Yourself. Boom. It's a Routledge book. It's brand new. It's an epistemology book, but it's, uh, I don't know, it's like pitched at the popular level, so all you, everyone can read it, but it's got good, uh, good old arguments in here. He's a great writer, so I highly recommend this book. I'm excited for it. We're going to get into it uh, in just a second, but I wanted to mention that there's a Routledge 20% off link in the description for this book, so you can go find that link right now in the description and grab this book for 20% off. It's really fun. It's really fun to think about. It'll help you become a better epistemologist yourself and help you form your own beliefs on the matter. Like, is it okay to ever not think for yourself? What do we think? I also want to mention that this episode is brought to you in part by Murdy Creative Co. Murdy Creative is an amazing leather goods company. They make really, really cool journal covers. They make really cool briefcases. I love this guy. I love his work. I love the whole company. And right now we're teaming up to bring my audience 10% off their entire order. So follow the link in the description and use promo code PARKERNOTES, all caps, at checkout. That's PARKERNOTES in all caps at checkout for 10% off your entire order. Follow the link in the description wherever you get in this podcast at to support this podcast and get 10% off your whole order. Uh, another way you can support this podcast is by becoming a Patreon patron. You can find the link in the description. If you guys, uh, the reason it's Parker Notes for Murdy Creative is because that channel's huge and this channel is very, very small. If you guys like the niche content that I'm bringing to you, then you got to support your boy. So support me on Patreon or YouTube members if you don't want to see me go all mainstream and broaden out the topics. If you like the niche stuff and all the topics I get into, then please support me. Uh, that's probably enough commodification. Let's get on with the show and talk with John Matheson about why it's okay not to think for yourself. Boom. Dude, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Uh, I appreciate the invite. It's great, uh, great as always to have a conversation with you. Looking forward to it. Yeah, man. Well, um, first off, like, how did you get started thinking about this idea? Yeah, so uh, it was probably, you know, 20, 2019-ish. Um, uh, as I start the book, there was a there was an open letter written by a bunch of professors from Stanford, Yale, a couple Ivy League schools, and they wrote an open letter to incoming freshmen, giving them some advice. And their number one piece of advice was to think for yourselves. And something about that struck me as like obviously right. Uh, that seems like good advice. I want my students uh, to think for themselves. But at the same time, something didn't sit quite right with that. And, yeah. uh, you know, thinking for yourself, I think is, you know, there's some good, good stuff that comes along with that. But, you know, just because someone thinks for themselves, that's not uh, really all that impressive all on its own. Yeah. Uh, and that what, what, what made that a little more puzzling is as I was thinking about, you know, as when we're thinking about something, when we're inquiring, inquiring we're trying to figure out the answer to our question. And, you know, for almost any question you want to think about, someone else is better at answering mm. that than you are, right? Yeah. So for very few things am I 
the best at answering that question, like probably about my immediate environment and my relatively recent past. Uh, but for everything else, there's probably someone better. So that, that that's the tension that kind of drove um, this kind of long project thinking about epistemic autonomy and eventually to the book is how do we reconcile this tension between on the one hand, there's something good about thinking for yourself, but on the other hand, you know, anything you can think about, someone else can think about better. And so what's, you know, how, how do we, how do we deal with that tension? Where do we find, uh, where do we find the right balance? So that, that's what led to the whole thing. Uh, it actually, you know, so much of philosophy, I think starts with an answer that you already have, and then you kind of do the, do the back roads argument to, to where you, where you were going to get. I, it, it, this one was honest philosophy. Maybe we'll call it like, it really did start with a puzzle and a question, yeah. uh, where I had no idea where it was going to end up. And you know, like you, I have a little bit of discomfort, uh, about where it ended up. Uh, there's, yeah, it's a little bit triggering. We can say that that's okay. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> um, I guess as you as you mentioned in the book, uh, it's it's good to get clear on this stuff. So, what does it what does it mean to think for yourself? What do we have in mind when we're saying that? Yeah, so I think that's where maybe a lot of the resistance to the conclusion might come from. Um, and you know, because I do mean something a little bit particular by thinking for yourself. So, I don't know that there's any sort of universal idea of what it means to think for yourself, but it has to be something more than just using. Uh, using your brain, since I figure like using your brain is inevitable, like that anytime, uh, anytime you have a belief at all, you're using your brain in some capacity. So thinking for yourself has to be more than that to, to have this question be an well, interesting for, question. For now, until the Neuralink, Neuralink <laughs> come out, and then we don't need to use our brain even. Yeah. Fair enough. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to stake a claim on other, <laughs> other contentious philosophical questions. Um, so the way I thought about it is to divide kind of two ways that you might go about inquiring into a question. Um, and the other one being deference. So when you defer to someone else, you take them at their word. So you believe what they tell you and you believe them because they told you so. So not that you don't have reasons, but your reasons for believing it are entirely reasons about that speaker, about that person, reasons to trust them you don't have the information that they are basing their belief on. So that's what I take this kind of idea of deference to be the, the alternative thinking for yourself then is when you do have the relevant evidence and arguments for yourself, you've looked at, you've acquired the evidence, you've made your own assessment of it, and you've tried to come to grips with what that evidence supports. So the way I want to think about thinking for yourself is really just what kind of evidence are you using? Are you using what I called in the book, like direct reasons or reasons that are pointing towards the answer directly? Or are they more indirect reasons that just point to the reliability or trustworthiness uh, of some other source? I, I really like that distinction that you made in the book. And it's helpful to, because um, <clears throat> this isn't like an irrational deference. It's still, you know, indirect reasons are still reasons. So you, right. you still can have justification or whatever you want to add in for your beliefs to get knowledge. And uh, in deference, in deference, not like indifference or anything, in cases of deference, uh, you're trusting that, I guess, do you need that maxim, that evidence of evidence is evidence in order for deference to be like a justifiable thing 
You're, are you are you basing yeah. deference on the fact that whoever you're deferring to has evidence, and your evidence is their evidence? I um, so I there yeah there is this kind of platitude that evidence of evidence is evidence, and I think different people think of that uh, in different ways. And so I don't know if I want to commit to okay. that uh, necessarily. I do I do want to say this though that it can it can be reasonable to believe something uh, on the basis of someone else saying so right yeah. on the when the only reasons you have are reasons to trust them so if we want to cash that out in terms of the same evidence of evidence is evidence then i think that's fine um yeah what's important is that in, in, in my picture is you don't actually have the evidence that they're working with right so yeah. the evidence that they're basing their belief on is opaque to you yeah. you may know that they have it you may know that they are an informed rational individual but you don't know why they believe what they believe. And is deference, is it synonymous with like testimonial evidence or is there important like distinctions here? I, I, I'm trying to think, I'm thinking, I guess someone wouldn't have to testify in order for you to uh, uh, defer to them, right? Like you, maybe you just have someone else told you that they know about this person or, or something like that. Yeah, certainly wouldn't have to be like spoken. Um, yeah. Uh, shoot, I just lost what I was going to say. Um, testimonial deference doesn't have to be spoken oh so that, that there can also i mean they aren't totally mutually exclusive options as well right yeah. so you you can hear someone can test give you testimony to some to some proposition or some claim and you can also think about it for yourself right then right. you're not deferring because you're not believing them just on the basis of their say so yeah but they still gave you testimony and their testimony may still be part of your evidence it's just you've also acquired direct reasons and, and that's part of the mix. Part of your evidential mix includes some of the some some evidence that you have for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So the I like I like this part of it. And I like the, you know, uh, deferring to experts type stuff. I think it's gonna get fun when we talk about like disagreement, uh ex expertise, uh disagreement amongst experts and, and how we pick those out without thinking about ourselves. Or thinking for ourselves maybe but um before we do that another thing to to get clear on is like what in in deferring we're deferring to experts right so you make this you you also make a distinction between uh experts was it is it experts and novices yeah is that the yeah okay so can you can you help us out with those two too sure i mean i let me just throw in one thing first so i i do think that there's already a little bit of uh discomfort i think in the way i i've frame that second chapter, which is believing something just because someone else does. Right? Yeah. So I, I do think that there's already some discomfort. If I said to you, oh, you only believe that because someone else believes it, we feel uncomfortable a little bit with that. But I think that's a misplaced discomfort as well. Because like, like you said, you know, any sort of expert testimony is going to work like that. And a, a, a vast portion of our knowledge and our beliefs come to us by way of testimony where we don't have direct access, direct access to the relevant reasons. And so we have to, I think, embrace the idea that it can be rational to believe something just because someone, someone else says so. But yeah, so I, I distinguish between experts and novices. And, you know, I don't want too much uh, to hang on any particular way that that gets broken up. What, what's really, I think, important for me is that there are people who are better and worse positioned to answer questions. Yeah. Um, and so however we want to think about your epistemic position, like I think some pretty plausible candidates are that it matters 
what evidence you have or how much evidence you have, how much you've thought about it, what sort of intellectual virtues you have. But the idea that some people are better positioned to answer some questions than other people. And so I'm really using expert in just that sense of someone who's better off, better off than I am. Um, you know, other more precise accounts of expertise might want to draw a threshold for like experts have to be at least so good. Yeah. But I think what's most important for the project I want to do is just that they're better than you, that you'd be better in terms of getting the answer right. You'd be better off going with them than you would be going it on your own. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good. That's helpful. Um, there, this is a series, uh, which I didn't know about until this book, but it's a whole like why it's okay series. So yeah. you didn't you didn't pick the full title here because it's got to fit in the series. But you yeah. also you also defend you know the okay or you define it. So like what what do you mean by okay? Um, it's okay. Why it's okay for you not to think for yourself? What what does the okay mean? That's a perfectly fine way to live your life. There's no, there's nothing yeah. wrong with it. Um, and in particular, I'm concerned with uh, your intellectual life. So is there anything wrong intellectually or epistemically? So there's lots of different normative spheres in which we can uh, evaluate our actions uh, and, you know, to evaluate the morality of thinking for yourself or the pragmatic value of thinking for yourself. There's going to be a lot of other factors that are going to feature into that discussion. I think your intellectual responsibilities will be part of that discussion. So I do think that the book and the arguments uh, therein help do something toward an answer to those yeah. other kinds of uh, normativity. But my focus is just on what's epistemically all right. So from the epist epistemic perspective, how should we think about someone who doesn't think about something for themselves? And that's what I want to say. There's nothing, there's nothing problematic about it. Okay. So um, I don't think these claims are equivalent, but <clears throat> the claim that it's okay to not think for yourself and the claim that it's okay to never think for yourself is it okay to never think for yourself? Because it one's like bare permission. I, I guess they're both permissive, right? But one's like it, it it ranges over a broader category, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, one you know, one question is whether it's even possible to never think right. for yourself. Right. Uh, and I don't. Uh, you know, that's. I think that's a difficult question. I don't know that I want to say that I even want to defend the never answer, but I do okay. want to say it's okay to do a lot less thinking for yourself than what we think. So like um, there can be uh, massive amounts of thinking that we outsource. So the, the, the parallel I draw, um, which in my mind I think helps a lot is to think about home improvement projects yeah. uh, because I'm not at all, I'm not at all handy. And so this was a little bit of like a, me reassuring myself that that's, <laughs> that that's okay. That's you know, so for any house project, there's someone else who's better, you know, who's better than I am at uh, performing that repair or that, that fix. You know, maybe there's some things that I'm as good as anyone else is, but they're, they're really small and trivial, like changing easy to reach light bulbs uh, or something Same. like that. So would it be okay to never, you know, would it be okay to never do any home repairs? Um, yeah, you know, you know, maybe, but maybe there are some things that I would be, you know, the best at. Just like in the in the intellectual case, things about like my my immediate environment and my um, my close my close past. Maybe it would be a problem for me to to defer on those matters because I would be taking a, a suboptimal route to those answers. Mm -hmm. So I don't I don't want to say never. I just want I do want to say um, for a lot less, right? So it's hard to put. I know it's it's kind of 
fuzzy and hedgy and it's not nice to put you know to to quantify in these kind of vague ways but that there's that a life that's full of outsourcing that has a lot of deference in it is perfectly okay even if we can't do full you know full entire outsourcing okay that's good it is a little it is hedgy because i'm like well now i got some cases but i don't have the cases if you don't go with the never uh you you did the, the home improvements and like the gardening and stuff you mentioned uh Rico and Rhonda in the book. Yeah. And I think Rhonda like takes, she, she does everything with her hands and she takes care of her own house. And then there's Rico who outsources, he, he pays everyone to do it. And I think the, the claim was that like both are equally, well, both equally have tidy houses. Their but, house is in order. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Their house is in order. But I wonder like, uh, attributing, uh, like praiseworthiness or not. Like is one more, praiseworthy than the other and i think the intuitions might come apart on that because i i would think i would think ronda would be more praiseworthy so uh but i don't know yeah uh i think that's right uh you know there's a lot of things that she's accomplished that rico hasn't accomplished um but i think that's okay so there's nothing there's nothing wrong with living uh a life that's less praiseworthy than someone else's life Right. Yeah. So that's that's uh, an interesting point that I, I, w- I wanted to think about in regards to your conclusion. If it's OK to not think for yourself, then does that make thinking for yourself like an act of super irrigation or like, uh, you know, more praiseworthy? Or is it like just unnecessary? And it's like, OK, yeah. well, you thought for yourself, but who cares? You didn't need to. Yeah, um, I think it can go a lot of different ways. Um, so in some cases, I do think that there are intellectual goods that you can only get by thinking for yourself. Okay. And so to go above and beyond and get those goods, that would be epistemically supererogatory. You're going okay. above and beyond and you got a better intellectual state than you needed to get. Sometimes I think it is just kind of meh, it's neutral. Like the <laughs> thinking for yourself, you could have done it or not done it. no no advantage was had by doing that yeah but i also think sometimes it can actually have a negative impact right so sometimes thinking for yourself can enter confusions and mislead you and so you might end up being in a worse intellectual space for having thought about things for yourself where you would have been better off if you had just deferred yeah so i think it can go in any of those ways Mm. you can make things better you can make things worse you can leave things the same but in in each of those scenarios, I want to say there's nothing wrong with just not doing it, with not taking on that extra thing of thinking for yourself. Yeah. I, okay. That's good. I wonder how you would know before you started the project, whether it's going to lead you yeah. into the worse, neutral or better. Yeah. Hard to know. Um, and, you know, the, I think that's another part of the reason why uh, it's okay not to think for yourself is some of those goods like understanding. So understanding is one epistemic good that I think you can only get by thinking about things for yourself. You can't can't really grasp it and see it for yourself if you're not wrestling with the reasons uh, on your own. Yeah. So if you can get that, great. Now, how good are we at determining whether or not we can that understanding is in the cards for us if we were to think about it for ourselves, right? So if I, you know, if I'm honest with myself and I'm thinking about some complicated mathematical theorem, uh, you know, I can know that it's I can know that it's true by deference to a, a mathematician. 
I could think, wouldn't it be better if I understood it and like I could see for myself why it's true? Yeah, that'd be better. To do that, I'd have to think about it for myself. Great. But if I did, um, how likely would it be that I would actually come to understand it? And I think for me in a compli complicated mathematical theorem, I'm thinking it's pretty unlikely. So, you know, maybe there's some decision theory that then comes in to, in terms of like um, whether or not it's a good idea, but either way, I still think it's fine to not do it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That, that's really good. Understanding being one of the intellectual goods is really good. Um, this is, this doesn't really hinge. <laughs> this doesn't have any, uh, this is peripheral, peripheral, but you're an epistemologist. So I could ask you, do you think you could have under, understanding, uh, if someone implanted, can, can someone implant understanding, uh, into your, into your, you know, cognitive network or, you know, your belief neurotic structure or something could, could they put that in there or do you have to actually do the hard work of chewing on it yourself for it to count as understanding? Yeah, I think you have to put in the work. So, um, I mean, it's hard to think about implanted mental states. Yeah. Um, but you know, just think of it this way, like, you know, knowledge, just, let's just think about regular testimonial transmission. Mm -hmm. Um, I can get knowledge by someone else just telling me the answer to a question, especially if I know that they're, you know, a reliable, well-informed individual, but I can't get understanding, um, by them just telling me the answer. I'm going to have to put in some intellectual work. So mm -hmm. the example that I like to think about is, you know, students in my symbolic logic class, I can tell them that the, the two sides of De Morgan's law are logically equivalent, yeah. um, statement forms. And, you know, they trust me, so they believe me. And so I think that they can know on the basis of their trust in me that they're logically equivalent statement forms. Yeah. But they don't get it, most of them. Um, you know, and then maybe, you know, a couple of days or a couple of weeks later, you know, it does. They do grasp it and they get it. And they got this better uh, epistemic state of understanding, or at least a better degree of understanding. But that is something I think I couldn't just impart to them by words or by mm. any sort of like neural implant either like that that grasping i think does take intellectual work on your mm. own um yeah, yeah. and it, it takes them recollecting it from a, a previous life uh when they were back in the forms uh <laughs> <laughs> if that's your view about things then yes yes yeah, that's good um the, okay that's that's good so back back to it um there's a couple ways I want to go. Maybe, maybe, maybe a preview of things to come. I want to talk about victim blaming, flat Earth, and Nazis, groupthink, <laughs> and uh, Socratic questions, and maybe self knowledge. So that's that's just talk about your a, teasers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just a warning. It's, I'm trying to keep myself honest here. <clears throat> so uh, let's go with flat Earth first. So um, I can imagine flat Earth. Uh, looking into the evidence for yourself, putting you in a worse situation than otherwise, uh, based on your geographic location and your ability to charter a plane or something like that, right? Like if you can't do any of those things and you're just sitting in your armchair, maybe you come to a worse position if you're just uh, researching on YouTube. But I also wonder about uh, deferring to different experts. So you come across a guy who is a a university professor and he's a flat earther and he's a really sharp epistemologist and he's like hey look the, i think the earth is flat and here's why 
and you have another expert who says that guy's a kook. So like, how do you, um, if it's okay to not think for yourself and defer, don't you have to think for yourself in adjudicating between the two experts that you're trying to defer to? Yeah, good. Um, I don't think so. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> let's try to fill out why. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of revisit the practical analogy, right? So suppose you have two plumbers, first mm -hmm. of all, and they diagnose different problems with the, with your plumbing, different explanations as for why, you know, there's flooding in your basement. Do you have to think for yourself in order to determine which plumber is trustworthy? Um, I think no, or I sure hope not because I'm going to do really bad at that, right? Cause mm. they can both tell me really plausible stories that from my lay person point of view, you know, sound equally good, right? They can each point to funny looking parts and, and, and say things. How am I going to determine which plumber to go with? I think I, what I have to do is either, you know, resort to other additional experts or okay. to some crowd outsourcing about the general state of plumbing or the, the, the reliability of these individual plumbers, but that's still relying on other people's assessment of the individuals in question. Right. So I think the same thing in like the flat earth case, you might have two people, me from my, you know, novice point of view, I'm going to have a hard time perhaps determining which of those two, uh, I ought to trust, but there are other experts, other people who are better positioned than I am to weigh in on the debate. And there's also, uh, right. It's like an appeal to the general state of the debate yeah. and like how the, you know, how the numbers <laughs> align for the relevant experts. And I can talk to other, you know, talk to other people to help me navigate who to trust and why to trust them. I can do all of that without looking at each individual's arguments and evidence for or against flat earth um, theory and evaluating that for myself. So given that I'm not going to be very good at doing that, my own evaluation of their, their evidence and reasons isn't going to give me a a, a good indication of which of these experts is more trustworthy or more or reliable on the issue. So maybe this is, maybe this is like moving the goalpost, but I'm wondering um, in, in the case of the, the plumbers, you might, without going to a third plumber, maybe you're like, Hey, look, I'm just going to get more answers here. I'm going to evaluate. I'm not in a position to evaluate their expertise as a plumber, but I'm, a, I'm, I am a human being and I can evaluate them based on trustworthiness. Do I think this guy is trustworthy and telling me the right story or is he trying to upsell me or something like that? Is that, does, does that change the case too much? And am I cheating here by, by saying like, instead of looking at the relevant details in which they're an expert, I'm looking at their, their personal moral character instead. I'm trying to evaluate that. Yeah. Um, well, I, mean, I think that's okay. But I mean, again, I want to, I don't want to be committed to it being wrong to think for yourself. Uh, right? Yeah, right, so that right. is an option. All that I okay. want to commit to is that there's nothing wrong if you do outsource that question between which plumber should I go with to someone else, right? So if yeah. you if you want to take it on yourself, then maybe that's fine. If I don't, all that I want to say is that there's there's nothing deficient about my course of action by relying on someone else or some other group to help make that determination. Mm, okay, so... Um, if you were to, oh, wow, I'm trying to wrestle with this. If you were to try to understand the problem in your basement, you, that would be, 
maybe an act of super irrigation, but there'd be an intellectual good that you'd get. You'd start to understand plumbing perhaps more. And you could say, look, that's a waste of time, but it, it also could be beneficial in that it would help you adjudicate between these two guys or in the future it would help you understand more plumbing. So it's like, sure. in that case, how do we go about weighing uh, the choices? So, okay, it's still, I guess it's your, your claim is just that it's okay. But in this case, I want to say, yeah. like, is it is does the goods outweigh the okayness such yeah. that it's not it's not it's no longer like a viable option or it's not as permissible or something because yeah. the goods you're leaving on the table is too high or something. So I mean, you know, think of it this way: like one great way to to evaluate between the plumbers would be to become a plumber yourself, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's a long it's, it'd be a long term way to solve the goal, but like. <laughs> You go to plumbing school, become a plumber, and then <laughs> yeah. you can help distinguish. And you know, you're saying, and thrown in bonus, now you're also a plumber, and so yeah. you have all you you have this whole skill set that you didn't have before. So again, I want to say, great, that you know, uh, that's a great way to live your life. That's yeah. fine. But if someone else says, you know what, I don't want to do that. I want to live my life in a different way. Yeah, that's perfectly fine. There's no, there's not an intellectual defect in yeah. not taking on that intellectual work yourself yes you are going to miss out on some goods like mm. you'd be able to problem solve things that you that you won't be able to if you don't put in that effort but that's okay because yeah. you have this great resource namely all these other people who who already have this this skill mastered and these answers figured out mm. yeah this is good i wonder if this applies to more ab abstruse uh ethical questions and, and just random like game theory questions. Like, uh, you familiar with like, like Newcomb's paradox. Mm -hmm. So I think now people are more like, uh, two boxers than one boxing. I, okay. from what I've, from what I've heard, can I just be like, Hey, look, dude, I don't know. I don't want to think about Newcomb's paradox. I, if, if, if more people are going in for two boxing, then I'm a two boxer. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think so. This is where, you know, my views about disagreement are going to pop up too, which is that I don't think it's just a pure matter of like the numbers, right? So if it's like 52, 48, it's not like, oh, we should all be two boxers now. Yeah. Like, I think, you know, when I would consider that what I call like a, the, the debate to be in a state of disarray where there's no clear uh, consensus, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I think the thing to do in a case like that is to suspend judgment. So there have to be, I think, a clear consensus view amongst the relevant experts. So like there is in the flat earth case, I mean, against the flat earth view, um, but there's not in the Newcomb uh, paradox case because the the views there are, are too, you know, they're too equally dispersed. Even if there's not a perfect equilibrium, it's still, you know, it's still kind of chaos. So that's, that's a really helpful point. So how, how, how might we know um, which areas it's okay to not think? So... When it comes to Newcomb's paradox, it's it may not be okay to not think for yourself because no, I would still say you shouldn't think for yourself. I mean, not that you should, but that it's okay <laughs> yeah, not to almost think for gotcha. yourself. Almost gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> um, because uh, look, think of it this way: the the world's best and brightest people collectively can't figure this out. Yeah. How weird would it be to then think? But luckily, I'm here to save the day. I'm going to think about it. And th and by adding my intellectual efforts, I'm going to come to the conclusion that is now supported by um, the evidence, right? That This is what I call the evidential swamping argument in the book, yeah. which is the 
the evidence you have about the state of the debate is so strong, it's going to outweigh any sort of like evidence that you get from thinking about it for yourself. Right. So I think this is in the book too, but the kind of view or the anecdote that I have in the back of my head for this is like the undergraduate student in intro to philosophy who says like, you know, I, we had this module on free will, looked at these different views about free will. And uh, he's like, you know, I thought about it for myself and, you know, here's, here's the answer. And I think, well, I mean, I think I don't say this to my students directly, but you know, good for you. Like uh, you thought about it for yourself. That's what I wanted you to do, but don't at all think that by having thought about it for yourself for two weeks, you're then like rationally entitled to this conclusion. After all, think about all these smart philosophers who are way more informed than you are way more intelligent than you are way more intellectually virtuous than you are. They can't collectively figure it out. So the fact that you've thought about it for yourself for two weeks, again, Fine, good, great, and that's what I wanted you to do, but that doesn't mean that you're rational in believing the conclusion that you came to. Right. So the swamping gets me; <clears throat> it makes me nervous because then I think it does that person have a reason to continue on to become a philosopher of free will because yeah. they have all this evidence that it's like the state of disarray or something like that. It seems like. If you have all this evidence that the the world's greatest philosophers who study this stuff for years can't come to conclusion, it seems like it would be irrational, maybe, for you to think that you can do it, right? Unless you have like a, well, yeah, even with like a bland indifference principle, right? Okay, so you're like, even if you're generally as smart as them, unless you think you're way smarter than them, there's no reason for you to continue on. Well, so I wouldn't go there. So, I mean, I I do think... um... It wouldn't be rational for you to think that you're going to figure it out, right? So, okay. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're the undergrad, the grad student, the postdoc, the assistant professor, at whatever level, I think it's probably not reasonable for anyone to be thinking, well, I'm going to solve this philosophical problem. Huh. Uh, it's just, it's not going to happen. Or it's not going to be, it's not reasonable for us to think it's going to happen, given the vast, you know, disagreement and contentiousness that surrounds philosophy. Does that mean it's not worth doing? Uh, no, I mean, uh, I, I love doing philosophy. Um, it's a lot of fun. You get paid to think about tough issues. Um, you know, one of my, <laughs> this reminds me of a, a conversation I had with one of my kids when they were younger. And, you know, because they were asking why I was working on a paper as a teacher. That seemed kind of strange to them. And, <laughs> uh, you know, they, they, they asked me, uh, well, has, have any of your ideas been right? Uh, and I was like, well, I, uh, I don't know. Like they, they seem pretty good to me. And then they were just kind of like flabbergasted. Like, do you get, like, do you get in trouble when they're wrong? I'm like, no, it's, you know, it's okay. As long as you're wrong in the right way, uh, yeah. it's a perfectly fine way to, to be a philosopher. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, I mean, there's something weird about that. You know, it's, it, it, wouldn't it be better if we could, you know, solve all these problems? Yes, uh, it's probably not going to happen. But I don't think it's, that means it's not worthwhile doing. I mean, especially if you you enjoy doing it, great, go do it. But it's also not a requirement, right? So if someone else thinks like, oh, look, philosophy, they have these problems. They haven't been able to figure them out. I probably wouldn't be able to figure them out either. I'm going to go do something else instead. Great. Mm. I mean, that's, that's perfectly fine. Like that's, uh, you know, that's the kind of, sort of like common sense, ordinary person that I'm trying to defend in the book, right? That you don't have to go and figure everything out. Yeah. So 
Uh, um, this is so good. That reminded me just randomly. Um, there's this there was this funny meme I came across where it was like a STEM major making fun of philosophy majors, and it was like, "Oh dang, I have a thought due on Friday." And I, <laughs> at first, I was like, "Oh, that's that's just like normal." And then I understood why everyone else thought that was funny because they have like projects due, and we just have to like think of things yeah. and present our thoughts. And it was really funny that I didn't get it at first, but um, uh, I don't know. So I think the gambler's fallacy is like something like, hey, I'm going to gamble because someone has to win. Is that right? Uh, I think it's usually like uh, having lost. Oh, yeah. You think that you're more likely to win the next one. Right. Okay. Because the odds will um, you you connect the odds over the the I can't lose again to each individual event on its own. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so what's the, is there one that, that says like someone has to win, so it might as well be me or. That does sound like a fallacy. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I, I don't know if that one's named. Uh, yeah. You can get your and, name on there. Yeah, that's right. Parker's fallacy. <laughs> I, well, I just wonder about that when it comes to, um, when it comes to the question, I, I was just asking about like solving the problem, right? Where it's like, um, it's unlikely that I can solve it. I don't have any reason to think I could solve it more than anyone else. But if someone, if someone has to solve it or if someone's going to solve it, it might as well be me. Cause there's been other problems that look like they were insoluble and then someone solved them. So I wonder if that's a, a I guess that's a fallacy yeah. maybe like, well, but I mean, I think we can make, you can press that problem more, like take it outside philosophy, you know, take it into engineering say where um, the student does show promise in engineering it is reasonable for them to think that they will uncover new truths and beneficial things in engineering if they pursue that um that path yeah um are they intellectually required to do that um no i think no like suppose they want to be a violinist instead great uh that's fine it's perfectly fine to not to not pursue that uh intellectual trajectory even if you knew that there were these intellectual benefits that were awaiting for you if you took that course of action. So I'm thinking more uh, in light of the swamping and the state of disarray. So Mm -hmm. it would be like if there was a really tough puzzle in engineering and you were like, well, I'm going to solve this. And it's like, well, you you shouldn't think that you are going to solve that because the world's experts haven't. But but then that that might disincentivize like the true geniuses or whoever who've gone on. I, I wish if I were smarter, yeah. I would have a good example for you. Yeah. And be like, well, no, look I mean, Newton did this. Yeah. You know? Cause I mean, that's, that's the word that people have brought up, you know, it's like, you know, if everyone, if everyone follows the, you know, this kind of like get out of thinking for yourself free, free card, yeah. and then we will run out of experts. No one will be an expert. And then we'll be really, we'll be stuck in a terrible intellectual space. So there is, I think, a kind of collective action problem where it is important that we have experts and it's important that we have experts in this wide, diverse array of disciplines. But I don't think that translates to any individual responsibility that that you or that some one individual thereby has to pursue a certain set of questions or particular intellectual endeavors even if more generally as like a society um we have this responsibility yeah i don't think it trickles down to any individual okay that's that's good these and you think that too because i mean if if someone's you know if someone's talking to you about what they should major in and they want to do something else i 
you know, you're going to tell them, fine, do that. Do, do what you really enjoy. Go, I, go I, I do that. the math. I do the math. I say, I told the last three guys not to do this. So now I have to tell you to do it because I, uh, got <laughs> <laughs> to no, meet my quota of, uh, right. engineering yeah. recommendations. That's right. Um, I want to talk about victim blaming. I, I don't, yeah. th this isn't one that would come naturally to me, but we talked about this in Chicago and someone might have this in mind and say well look if you are if you're telling people not it's okay to not think for yourself then you're going to put them in situations wherein they become victims of all sorts of different types of abuse and yeah. i know you know this is a this is a, a problem that people raise i really like your reply to this so i wanted to put it on you know put yeah. it on in there for us yeah i mean i think it's the most uh you know uncomfortable objection right because yeah. i mean it put in its strongest form the objection saying, you know, isn't your advice facilitating all kinds of abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse, emotion, emotional abuse, yeah. because um, people can take advantage of their power and their intellectual power to manipulate other people. And if they aren't thinking for themselves, aren't we then like exacerbating the problem? Um, so, I mean, I obviously want to agree that that's a problem, like that uh, that sort of abuse of power is problematic and, and terrible. Where I disagree is in thinking that the solution is in thinking for yourself. Um, and I guess there's two reasons for that. Um, the first is if we say the solution or the best way to prevent these abuses is to think for yourself, I do think that that at least facilitates a kind of victim blaming yeah. because, you know, why did this abuse happen? Well, the individual in question didn't think for themselves. If only they had thought for themselves, they could see that they were being manipulated and taken advantage of. Um, that sounds like we're blaming them, that, yeah. that it was their intellectual failing that led to their abuse. And I think that's exactly backwards. Like what, right. what, uh, what allows for that abuse to happen, unfortunately, is because people can be rationally following their evidence. They are, they have good reasons to trust these people uh, in power and in intellectual positions of power. That power can be abused. And when it's abused, it's a terrible thing, but it's not because the individual in question is being irrational or believing irrational. Yeah. So I think instead the solution has to be safeguards that are in place, but in a better intellectual position. So other experts, right? Other experts safeguarding lay people from experts and in groups, right? In terms of like there being institutional safeguards for people. Um, like, so in, in the, you know, the case I talk about in the, in the book is based on an, an objection that Jennifer Lackey brings up about predatory experts in USA uh, gymnastics. And I think the solution that, that they came up with is instructive, right? Which was, you know, if, if you see anything or think or feel anything that seems a little bit off, report it. You're required to report it. You don't have to first be rational and believing that there's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think you're not as a, as a novice in a position where you can rationally come to those conclusions, but anything even seems off, it's irrational. Fine. Still, still have to report it because then when that happens at the institutional level, we can identify problems that mm. no individual could rationally identify on their own. Yeah. Right. So the thinking for yourself, I think is not the way out of the problem. It's by relying on either other experts or on institutions to use their 
positions of power and intellectual power to to help protect us. Mm. Yeah, I thought that was such a such a a good move, but also like a really helpful move to to be like, hey, look, let's not let's not blame the victims and make things worse and and like you know slap them on the wrist because you should have known better. Like no, you shouldn't have known better, right. and it is reasonable. Yeah. I <clears throat> I think that's a good point to emphasize because even backing off of like like sexual abuse stuff. Um, and just think about like the government abuse and it's like, wake up sheeple, think for yourselves. That's, you know, rage against the machine talking about it in their songs or something. Um, it's like a warning against that. Um, but well, I want to go to the Nazi case. Let me go to the Nazi case because, uh, it's like, it's, it's, it's closely related, but now these people are, uh, abusers. And they say, hey, look, I was just following orders. And it looks like um, if it's if it's rational for them to not think for themselves, I'm in this position where I'm a soldier. And I shouldn't think for myself. I've been commanded to do something. If I were in a position to think for myself, perhaps oh, I, I would not do this. But I'm not. Because what do I know, man? I'm just a foot soldier. So I do what I'm told. And so at, you know, the Nuremberg trials, we want to say like, no, you ought to have known there's a higher law above this. You should have thought for yourself and not done this. Does this excuse that? What, what do you think about that? Uh, good. I, I, I wasn't sure where you were going at first, but now I see what now I see the problem. Um, I think no, I don't think that this excuses that. I think that there's a like a domain shifting there. Right. Okay. So is there anything intellectually wrong with the soldier who doesn't figure out the details of what's going on. Um, I think, well, if you set the case up right, then there might not be any intellectual failing. Okay. There still could be a moral failing, right? There still could, it still could be morally wrong to do certain actions. And it still could be true that um, you ought to have known, even if you were, even if it wasn't true that you should think about it for yourself. Oh. So, I mean, I think, so I think one, I don't think the intellectual, charge is the primary charge that we want to level against that person right it's the moral charge okay and the moral charge can stick without the intellectual charge sticking that's fascinating so um how i'm trying to think how how would they have ought how how, how do they have culpable ignorance in nazi germany circa you know 1942 or whatever where like they were raised to hate a certain group of people they all their friends and family, all the experts told them that these are bad people. Like, um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a Christian. So I'm like, well, it's written on their heart or something, but you know, I don't know. What, 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 what do you make of that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's, there's hard moral questions, especially, I mean, not, I don't want to say it's a hard moral question. It's like, is, or is the Nazi wrong? That's not the hard moral. Right. But there are hard moral questions, I think, in particular, that connect your intellectual life to your moral life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to what extent your ignorance can can excuse you and in what situations it can't. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, living, a, you know, taking unnecessary moral risks, I think, can be itself morally problematic. Um, even, you know, even if you don't know exactly what it is that you're doing. Hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't think I have a good, nice, firm answer in terms of how to think about it. I'm, Cause I'm part of me is trying to connect it to things that I've said about, uh, 
moral risk and and being morally cautious so i i i have defended the claim that sometimes when you're in a bad intellectual environment that can change um what's morally permissible for you to do or right. or more directly what's morally impermissible for you to do so i do think that there can be cases where we set up the intellectual environment in the right way and it can have moral effects in terms yeah. of like things things that now are morally wrong for you that wouldn't be morally wrong um morally wrong otherwise but i think there are just hard questions in terms of like what do you have to know about morality in order to to be responsible for your actions like do you have to know that killing people like this is morally wrong do you have to have thought about it or is it enough that you should have thought about it that you yeah. that you should that um that you're responsible because you didn't think about it yeah that's that's good yeah this is this is tricky stuff well let's go with um Let's go with the Socratic objection. I forgot which chapter this is. Uh, chapter six, and this is the one where I'm like, as a, I'm pretty much obsessed with philosophy. I have, I think, six YouTube channels on philosophy, and I like I think about it a lot. You might have a uh, problem. Yeah, man. <laughs> but Socratic objection is like that's the one where I'm like trying to. I want to make people think about these questions, and yeah. in my, it would be a real boon to my. YouTube presence, if I could make people think that they're obliged to think about this, but, <laughs> but they're definitely obliged to donate. So I'll, right. I'll, I'll right. back you there, but I don't know okay. if they're obliged to think for themselves. Yeah. So can you lay out, can you just give us a crispy uh, definition of Socratic objection? Yeah. So, you know, I, I call the Socratic objection from the, you know, the famous line that the unexamined life uh, is, is not worth living. And so the, the worry there is that, you know, aren't there some questions that everyone should think about for themselves? Right? Mm -hmm. So even if there's many domains where thinking for yourself is unnecessary, aren't there some like the precious ones um, where everyone is required to, to think about it for themselves? And I, too, feel a lot of pull. Um in part, you know, as, you know, as a philosopher too, I, you know, I love those questions. I love thinking about those questions. Yeah. I too want everyone to think about those questions. But you no, know, is that me just, you know, wanting everyone to enjoy, you know, what I enjoy? Maybe. Yeah. Um, but I want to. But I want to say that that's yeah. That there. That there. That there is no good reason to treat questions about politics or morality or religion i think those are kind of like the 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 most plausible candidates as um special or immune from the kind of argument that i give in the book that uh that thinking for yourself is not is not required yeah so and I, you know in, in brief it's you know as long as there are facts of the matter and there are better and worse ways of uncovering those facts i think things hold yeah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, as long as you think that there are facts about whether God exists and that some people are better at figuring that out than others, then you have a reason to, uh, you know, that the arguments from the from from other domains apply equally well to those. So maybe ironically, if you were like a Wittgensteinian or something and you're like, <clears throat> or I don't know, a logical positivist and you're like, look, these make no sense anyways then the argument may not hold for you and maybe you should become a philosopher of religion. Uh, if, I mean, I don't know if, so there's a lot to bracket, but if it was reasonable <laughs> for you to think that these are nonsense questions, oh, then you just go with, nonsense it's hard questions. to see why then you'd have a responsibility to think about them for yourself because there's just not, there's no sense to be made there. 
There's no sense to be made, so there's no one who's better or worse at coming to answers on that question. But I think that I have answers to that question because well, of my logical if, positivism. Well, if you think you have, an, well, I don't know. Maybe I, if it's nonsense, if you if you think it's nonsense, I don't know that you can also think that you have answers or that you can isn't, get answers. Isn't that the? Oh well, yeah. Okay. So maybe you can't get answers, but that is uh, one meta answer to the category, right? There are no answers. Yes. So you are. That is, but if there's no answers, then I don't know. Then I mean, again, if you want to think about it for yourself, great, because you're just enjoying the the play. Yeah. But you're not going to find anything, so I don't. There wouldn't be any intellectual responsibility for you to do that because there's no intellectual goods there for you to gain. There's no goods for me to gain here, so I have no response. Okay, so I it'd be a waste of an effort to try and go and do that. They don't get to use the not think for yourself argument though, because they don't think anyone has better reasons. Um, there's no reason to defer. Them. So you, you, yeah. you've lost right. a reason to defer, but you haven't right. gained a reason to think about it for yourself. Yeah. Dang it, man. Don't do that. I want to force these guys in. <laughs> um, that's good. That's good. Um, shoot. Where was I? I was, I had something else after that, after that Socratic questions, the logical positivists got me. I got triggered by them. Um, <laughs> where were we going with that? I mean, so, I mean, uh, you know, another angle to motivate there is the idea that, you know, when it comes to these questions, everyone's equally good at answering them. Oh, yeah. That, that, that there are no experts uh, yeah. in these domains. So you you could think that without thinking they're nonsense domains, right? You could right. think that, um, you know, there are facts about morality, but morality is this kind of thing, whether it's a self-evident thing or it's a priori or it's just written on your conscience, like you, Matt, you, you, you said that everyone's equally good at figuring out those answers then you know then that would that would put pressure on the argument that says other people are better let them do it instead yeah uh i just think it's not plausible that we're all in an equally good epistemic position with regard to these questions um you know so the the standard you know them being a priori i think uh doesn't really help like math is a priori doesn't but you know are people better at math than other people yes uh you know i'm really bad at it so you know if someone said to me like those mathematical truths they're right there they're equally accessible to you i think um no i mean maybe they're there and maybe they're there for me to access but it's going to take a lot of work (laughs) for me to get there and it's going to be really easy for someone else to get there so they're not equally accessible uh, and, you know, and I think the same thing's true, you know, with, with morality and moral facts, maybe there's some sense in which they're there for everyone to, to discover, but some people are better equipped to make those discoveries than other people. Mm. Yeah. I, I wonder what impact this has on Pascal's wager. So, um, one objection to Pascal's wager is what if I'm wagering on the wrong God? Uh, she, it's, it's maybe it's just a, like, a it's just a particular case of the general same, same problem, uh, knowing who to trust when it comes to different theologians, I guess. Right. So like, I wonder if there's a swamping argument here that stops Pascal's wager, because look at all the disagreement amongst the religions that I'm trying to pick. And then even amongst the, in those religions, there's also all these different uh, experts who disagree with each other. And so maybe I have a swamping reason to not take Pascal's wager. Well, I mean, so 
I haven't thought about this, but I think it actually. And here, and here comes Liz Jackson. Yeah, we're going to bring her I in. I think and... it would really, actually, I think it'd go the other way where the argument would really set up Pascal's wager, right? So mm. you you look at the intellectual diversity, right? You think about which people are most likely to have, to get it right about God's existence. And you see they're all over the map. There's atheists, agnostics, there's theists. And of the theists, there's all kinds of, you know, there's all kinds of differences. And even of the atheists, there's all kinds of other religious differences. Um, so, I mean, it's a plausible case for there's a state of disarray mm. amongst the relevant experts, which would lead to uh, it being rational for you to suspend judgment, right? That you thinking about it for yourself isn't going to, you know, it's not going to be reasonable for you to think, well, as long as I think about it for myself, I'm going to come to a reasonable conclusion, given what you know about the intellectual diversity. But I take it that Pascal's wager, like that's the launching point, right? Because he's like, you know, whether whether it's true that God exists, 50-50, right? Or, you know, something like that. It's it's a, you know, it's a, can't figure that out. Then think about the practical consequences. So it's not an epistemic argument, right? It's a, it's a pragmatic argument. Mm. Um, and so I'm, <laughs> I'm concerned with like the, the ep, you know, the, it being epistemically okay. So the epistemically okay to not think for yourself, maybe I think given what I say, the epistemic thing for you to do is to suspend judgment. It's compatible with that, that the pragmatic thing for you to do is to believe something or to do something because that might, uh, that might be what has the best upshot given the intellectual <coughs> position that you're in. So I mean, my, my main focus is just what's that intellectual position. Yeah. Um, but I don't see anything that I say there's being incompatible with, say pascal's wager if anything i think it sets it up that's fascinating man this is this all helps you know um clarify your position more for me too this is really good i i am so allergic to pragmatic stuff because um i just that's who i am too. i'm it's too hard yeah i i just i want to be just the armchair guy i love yeah. a good armchair and some rationalism so I, I haven't thought a bunch about like pragmatic you know, um, I don't know if you call them pragmatic reasons even for action and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, I just don't, I don't go there. So it seems to me like if you don't, if you have a reason to suspend judgment and then you're acting for a pragmatic reason, that sounds like it's a, still a reason. It still sounds like it's epistemic to me. No, uh, no. So here, I mean, here's, I think the clearest case, this just steals from, uh, from Feldman's paper on, uh, religious disagreement but like yeah. suppose you come to a, a fork and you're going to a party you're driving to a party and you come to a fork in the road and you don't know if it's left or right suppose your evidence is you know 50 50 50 yeah. that's left 50 that's right is it rational to believe that you should go left no is it rational to believe that you should go right no you should suspend judgment um but what you shouldn't do is live out the rest of your days of that fork in the road, right? And just die there. You have a pragmatic reason to just take one of the roads. You have no, you know, no better one, no better reason to take one over the other, but you might as well take, you have a pragmatic reason to just take one. But as you're taking one, so suppose you're like, okay, fine, I'll just, I'll go right. As you're taking that route, it's not rational for you to believe that you're on the right path, right? So the, the epistemic reasons are still lacking. It's just you have a pragmatic reason to go this way because you have to you have to go somewhere. Is it a would would it be a non-rational reason or an irrational reason? 
I mean, I, I mean, I, given that you're talking reasons, I mean, reasons are just the things that make things rational. What I would just say is like, but it's in a different domain. So that's so the you thing have that your domain me. of the, epistemic reasons. Yeah, the domain point to truth and falsity. Yeah, what does pragmatic reasons point to? Like your benefit. I mean, I guess that's a complicated question. I guess yeah. you can have different views, but it's mostly about like what goes best for you. And so what definitely doesn't go best for you is waiting out the rest of your life at the fork in the road. So take one. Yeah. But when you take one, you have no better reason to think it's true that that's the right way to go. Does that make it an irrational action, though? Because you don't, you're not acting for epistem Like, you know what I mean? It, in the domain of knowledge, yeah. I guess, does that make it irrational that you chose right over left? You had no positive epistemic reason to choose that. Does yeah. that is that action informed by it seems like it's informed by your non reason to act? So, I mean, I think there are definitely going to be just like with the epistemic moral stuff that there's hard connections there. I think there's going to yeah. be hard connections between epistemic and pragmatic stuff. And obviously there's, you know, there's the pragmatic encroachment stuff that's a, in the other direction, which says yeah. like the pragmatic stuff can affect um, the epistemic stuff. But yeah, I mean, I think that there are probably some cases where the answer to what is it epistemically rational for you to believe is going to make an effect for what's pragmatically rational. Okay. But what's I think important for this case is even when the, the epistemic reasons are awash, they don't eliminate all your pragmatic reasons, right? You still got to do something. Okay. And so that, I mean, that's where I think like, um, you know, the, the, the William James, like will to believe stuff where there's a, there's a, there's a lack of parallel between practical action case and in the belief case because you know his you know his case is like you know either you take an umbrella or you don't you know either you either you propose or you don't propose um belief's not like that right you can believe you can disbelieve but you can also suspend yeah um there's no suspending in action because um that's just not doing it um so i mean he's right there that there's something different about action that there's no sort of neutral state um but what's different, I think, is in the intellectual realm, there is this neutral state of withholding. And so the two kinds of reasons, I think, at least can come apart in those cases. Yeah, okay. That's that's tricky. I got to look up some pra some pragmatic stuff, I guess. I got to dive in deeper, unfortunately. Which is, or maybe I'll just trust the experts on that. Yeah, I'm not worried that's about okay. it. That's okay. Yeah. That's yeah. okay. Um, okay, uh, uh, maybe last one here would be uh, instances of self-knowledge. So maybe I'm going to my therapist and they're an expert in dealing with people and i tell my therapist this is how i'm feeling and they say no you're not you're feeling this way um yeah is it is it rational like in instances of self-knowledge for me to is it okay for me to not think for myself when it, when it comes to my own uh thoughts so this is different than the the history stuff that you brought up yeah about my own history or my own surroundings this is like self-knowledge, but this is an expert in self-knowledge or not. This is an expert in dealing with psychology, you know? Yeah. And I'm a psychological being, I guess. So, I mean, I think it comes down to when we get the particular question narrowed down, like what is Parker feeling right now? Mm. How do we comparatively uh, rate the epistemic position of you? versus your therapist yeah right so on the one hand you have like direct access to all kinds of the phenomenological states yeah right but on the other hand like you have 
biases and you have blind spots and you, you know, there, there, there are ways in which your therapist can better understand you than you see yourself. Right. right? So I don't want to say that it's always going to be that you're in a better epistemic position. And I don't want to say it's always going to be that you're the therapist is in this case. So it's, it's going to depend. Like if the question is like, are you in intense searing pain right now? Like I think, it's really hard for me to imagine any possible case where someone else is in a better position than I am um, to determine that. Right. But there could, it's not too hard to think of a case where I might think that, um, you know, that I, that I'm happy or that I'm not anxious and my, you know, my wife think that I am. And then me come to realize, Oh yeah, she actually is better understanding my, my thoughts and behavior that I, I wasn't even aware of this, uh, this sort of mental state that I was in that she had a better access to that than I did. Yeah. So I think it can go, it, it can come apart. I mean, I think cases about your own psychology are probably some of the strongest cases for where ones where you're in the best position, but I think it's not a, not even a guarantee, right? You can at least build the, build the case out right where someone else could even be in a better position than you are and, and recognizably from your perspective, like where you can be, when you can recognizably think, oh no, actually it seems this way to me. My own mental life seems this way to me, but maybe someone else is more trustworthy about, uh, in answering that question than I am myself. Yeah. I can imagine I, I, with the pain one, I guess, uh, if someone, if your eyes are closed or in your, your, you know, I don't know, in a sensory deprivation tank or something, and, and someone's either tickling your, your big toe with a feather or poking it with a needle and saying like, Hey, are you in pain or are you experiencing a tickle? And you being like, well, I, a tickle. And like, no, I actually, you should be, you know, pain because I'm stabbing you with a, yeah, gently. Um, but I, but in the case of like uh, self consciousness or something, it's like if, if, um, <clears throat> oh, I don't know, if, if an eliminativist says, hey, look, man, I study the brain and I know this stuff uh, way more than you do. And I'm telling you that your consciousness is an illusion. Um, what do I do here? Do I defer yeah. to them? Yeah, no, I mean, I, that's a good case where I feel like no one is in a better position than I am to determine that I am conscious right now. Nice. And so it's hard. I, I, I feel no pull uh, to defer or to doubt myself in a case like that. So is that, I mean, is that one case where it's not okay to not think for yourself? Oh, there's a lot of negations there. Not... <laughs> Is that a case where you must think? Where for you yourself? have to think for yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's true that thinking for yourself will be the best route to your answer. So if that's your goal, I guess. So now it's it's better. It's but I mean, so part of you know, but part of what I want to say, especially in the understanding chapters, like you're not always required to do your best. Like there's ah. there's intellectually good enough that falls short of best because, you know, think of it this way, you can always do intellectually better, right? You can always gather more evidence. You can always think about it more. You can always double check, triple check, quadruple check. You can always make it better. Um, but at some point it's good enough. All the, all the type A people are, are biting their fingernails right now, freaking out. <laughs> what do you mean? I could have done better on my paper. Yeah. You could okay. always do I mean, that. that I mean, I think that goes both ways, but that is like my number one piece of advice to students is like your paper can always get better. Like mm. in one sense, that sounds bad, 
But in another sense, it should be a relief because no matter how good it gets, it will always be able to get better. And so all your, your job is to get your paper as good as you can until you get some arbitrary deadline where you have to do something with it. But you're never going to make it perfect because there's, there's no such thing. It can always get better. Yeah. And especially if you use chat GPT and it's okay, <laughs> it's okay to not think for yourself, then, you know, everyone, all your students are just going to be using This was chat. not an endorsement of that. No, that was a... a... <laughs> uh, that's good, man. Well, I, I, I always love talking with you because there's so many just random things that you help me with too. Uh, in epistemology it's not it's i'm so fascinated by it insofar as it connects to philosophy of mind and then other areas i'm like oh man i'm just so deep that i don't know what i'm talking about so i i always appreciate you being a, uh the philosophical midwife and helping me <laughs> with uh epistemology the books the book's really good like i said it's it's a struggle because i just the socratic questions especially i'm like no but it, it makes you think and it's really good um i think you're probably right um, so I think it may be okay to not think about this anymore for myself, but, uh, but I don't, I don't want that. So, I mean, I, I do kind of, you know, someone once referred to the project as like kind of a trolling project because I do want people <laughs> to think for themselves about the topic. So in some sense, like what's more engaging to, to think about for yourself and the idea that you don't even need to do it. Right. So like, yeah. there's something, like you said, provocative triggering, which hopefully makes you wrestle with these arguments and think about it. And I, you know, I think it goes better when you do that. I just don't think you're required to do that. So, I mean, yeah. as much as I'd like my, my book to be required reading, I didn't, I think, you know, it, it's optional. It's okay if you don't, but yeah. happy if you do. So good. And the cover is actually amazing. So again, folks, it is why it's okay not to think for yourself. And I'll drop a link in the description. If you use that link, you can support this podcast because it's an affiliate link. So do go and grab that. That's awesome. Um, John, man, if people wanted to find out more more from you, more of your work, can can they find your stuff somewhere? Uh, sure. I mean, I, I have a site on Phil Papers. I have a personal website. If you just Google in my name, it should show up, and I have uh, links to papers and books. But send an email, too. I'm always happy to converse with people who, who are interested in these ideas. Awesome. Yeah, and I'll, I'll drop a link to your stuff uh, in the description. So, folks, wherever you're listening – Go check the description and find more from Dr. John Matheson. All right, that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.